0: We covered many of the issues there on Wednesday in a series. Those of you uh, sat through that a while back, we we used Al Mohler's book, The Gathering Storm. We followed that up with uh, Erwin Lutzer, We Will Not Be Silenced. And uh, I, I really find it better to treat uh, these subjects in a class like that. Um, the issue does need address from the pulpit, but I don't want to become so issue oriented that it uh, detracts from the regular exposition of the scripture. So, Lord willing, next week we will begin a new series on the Gospel of Matthew. I will begin by giving an overview um, Matthew, 28 chapters. Uh, even if you were a slow reader, you could probably read through it in a couple of hours. And we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at the forest, and then we'll come back and work our way through that uh, gospel. Actually, the gospel of Matthew was the most important gospel for the early church. Um, so this morning is the second sermon on the crucial importance of imago Dei, the image of God and a clash with worldviews that reject the Creator— Reject we are created in the image of God and instead replace Scripture uh, with truth as a social construct. Why that? I mean whatever a group of people decides is truth, then that's what we're going to use as norm. And so, if you have your your bibles most of you do please turn to second corinthians chapter 6 as kind of a lead in to this it's not take a text and jump off but it is a key a key text on this whole issue i'm going to learn to use my left left arm a little bit better here and a little slow. Um, actually, there are when, when we come to second uh, uh, Corinthians, there are bookends around the passage. By that I mean when we approach this passage, there are some words and some phrases that introduce this passage and then end this passage. So look at them. In 6:11, Paul says, He's writing to the Corinthians, and the problem is is that false teachers and false apostles have been wooing the Corinthian church. And Paul says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. The word there is feelings. In other words, they had an attraction to false teachers, false doctrine, and Paul says, no, widen your hearts, open your hearts to us. Then when you come down to the end of this section, look at two. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. If we were to jump forward in chapters 10 and 11, the basic issue is this, false teachers were saying, Paul, really? He's weak. Um, he, he doesn't have all his message tied up with a with a nice ribbon. His his message isn't uh, powerful. And uh, Paul, uh, so he asks. Uh, the first of all is an imperative, and he goes back to the Old Testament and he uses a term that was used of uh, being too. Hetero yoked animals together, namely uh, a uh, an ox and a donkey. In the Old Testament, don't you shall not Deuteronomy twenty two ten. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. But he takes the term. He's not talking about animals. He takes that concept and he applies it spiritually. So he says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, this passage may have a number of applications, but Paul's primary point is the false teachers. Don't welcome them in. Don't listen to the false apostles. And he's going to ask five questions, rhetorical questions, and present five absurdities. So here we go. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, righteousness is God's standard. Anomia, not law, is exactly the opposite. What do those two have together? Nothing. What fellowship has light with darkness? Light and 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 darkness spiritually, uh, they they have no coin in the together. And what what accord has Christ with Belial? Now Belial is an old name for Satan. So it says, okay, if if you want to mix mix unbelief with belief. Imagine this. Imagine Christ and Satan sitting down together and having a little chat and saying, "Oh yeah, we agree. We we agree on a lot of stuff." You say, "No, that's impossible. It's absurd." Or what per- portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Your different frameworks, your different world views. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? So so we these are absurd questions that he's pointing out that you're welcoming in false teachers, those who have no relationship to the truth, and we're the temple of the living God. And and look at the promises that God has given. So he pulls them out. From the Old Testament, says they're still applicable. I will make my dwelling among them. I'll walk among them. Look at the wills. I will be their God. They shall be my people. It's not that these these aren't geographical terms. They're relational terms. God's going to manifest himself to his people. Go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I'll be a father to you. And you will be sons and daughters to me. Now look who's speaking. This is this is a uh, an expression for the omnipotence of God. Panta Krator, Almighty, all powerful. He is able to manifest his presence to those. So the the application is therefore, having the promises, beloved, cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, this brings us this morning to uh, uh, the second and and the last. We talked about what was taking place up in Canada that is now law. And if uh, some of you may listen to uh, Al Mohler, The Briefing, um, he gives, a, I don't listen to it every day. I don't know how he keeps up with all that stuff. But it, they are political and cultural comments on what is going on in the world. And on Wednesday, January 19th, and he has an international following, he drew attention to what is going on in West Lafayette, Indiana, City Ordinance 31 21. And it basically has not been passed yet. It's going to be voted on January 6th. They've tried a couple of times to pass this thing. And it basically says, now watch this, unlicensed persons. Are you an unlicensed counselor? What that means is, if you're not licensed by the state, you are an unlicensed counselor. If you're a parent, you're an unlicensed counselor. It shall be a violation of this ordinance for an unlicensed person to engage in conversion therapy with a minor person under 18 years of age. Now, let me talk about what conversion and therapy, uh, reparative therapy is. It it basically is this. um, The church uh, has not engaged in this. Uh, if, If you are... Uh, familiar with Exodus International. It was an organization started in 1973. They threw in the towel in, I think, 2012. And what they would do is people that uh, had homosexual attractions or engaged in homosexual, they, helped, they tried to help them convert back to become heterosexuals. But here's, here's one of the techniques that they used. Okay, suppose um, I might show a film or some pictures of homosexual behavior, and then I would try and stimulate you a negative response to that either through medication or through thinking. So whenever those kind of thoughts come to your mind, you would associate that negatively, and you would not want to do that. Now, that has nothing at all to do with the gospel. It is a psychological technique, and it was another failure. So eventually, the head of Exodus uh, International said, we, we've been wrong, we have, we have sinned against these people, and so we're, we're closing our doors. Now, the point here is that the city ordinance has so defined conversion therapy that it's not just talking about that, it is talking about any council that says Your biological gender is what you are, and you need to maintain that. And any enforcement of this ordinance will result in a fine of $1,000. A separate offense shall be deemed committed on each day that a violation uh, occurs. Uh, Dr. Steve Byers is the pastor there. I first uh, went to West Lafayette, I think it was 19... seventy two if I recall I was a young believer, and my pastor said, uh, Hey, I want you to go with me over to West Lafayette. And I don't know you know, but if he was willing, I love my pastor, and if he was willing to spend some time with me i'd I'd go with him so the two of us went over there, and I heard uh, Dr. J. Adams speaking on these issues i didn't know who he was he's uh, really had sparked the biblical counseling movement uh Jay Adams recently went home. To be uh, with the Lord. It used to be called Nank, National Association of Nuthetic Counselors. Nutheteo is from a Greek verb that means uh, out of Romans 15, you are competent to counsel one another, believers. Take the word of God and apply the word of God. A caricature against. Uh, biblical counseling is that you don't believe There are physical problems Well, of course there are physical problems um, If you have cancer, I can't, can't counsel cancer out of you But I can tell you, if you are a believer How to respond to God while you have uh, cancer So we don't deal with uh, medications We're not We're not doctors um, but we deal with spiritual principles. And to the uh, it, it's now called the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. What, what they do is they have a certification process, not for the state, but for counselors. So when they put you on your web on their website, you would know that you this person is probably reliable to give you biblical counseling. And it's it's a long process to go through. You have to uh, study systematic theology. You have to take a theology exam. Then you have to take a counseling exam. How would you handle certain scenarios? And then you have to take 50 hours of supervised counseling. Um, Dr. John Street was... uh, um, the supervisor for Mana, I would sit in my office. She would sit in Melanie's office and I would listen to it. And I go, Oh, this is really good, uh, good uh, counsel. So, the, the reason for certification is they just want people to make sure that they understand the scriptures and how to apply the scriptures. So, what has happened there in West Lafayette. Notice when it says unlicensed counselors. This is really who they're going after. So, Dr. Byers, I pulled this up. This is what he wrote. Uh, by the way, some of you, I, I've given you that book. You've used it. It's called "Putting Your Past Behind You." Uh, Steve is the author of that. He's a wonderful counselor and pastor. So he wrote to the city council, he says, you're not being honest here, and that's the issue with 3121. It's wrong on all sorts of leathers. It bot levels, it bothers me, it's disingenuous, and I've said to our city council, listen, if you want to criminalize biblical counseling, stand up and be honest and say that you're doing, but don't call it conversion therapy because we have never practiced conversion therapy, we don't believe in it, that came from the secular world. But if you're gonna use the term conversion therapy, define it properly, or if what you're really going after is anybody who has a viewpoint about human sexuality different than yours, at least be willing to stand up and say to the community what you're doing. And one of the city council members, um, a woman, she identifies herself as Q for queer, um, says we we wanna change the culture here. So I think Dr. Byers is right. This really isn't about homosexuality. This is about individual freedom. It's about parents' rights, and of course it's about religious liberty. He said, I had to lovingly say to our city council, we will never obey this ordinance. We will disobey it every day and hopefully before breakfast. I explained to them, here's why. We already have a God and you're not him. So it's an Acts 5:29 issue for us. We must obey God rather than man. But why I think this is helpful is this is kind of a test case. And this is a very, uh, you know, they have a huge counseling center. They have a drug center up there for rehab for, for abused women. This is a huge facility up there. He says, we're trying to win every person in our town to Jesus Christ, not fight with the city council. So we put together an organization called Lafayette Citizens for Freedom. In other words, I'm not going to go through all of that, but they didn't just roll over and, and, and play dead. And so they're trying to uh, organize and say we do have certain rights. This will be legally challenged, so we'll just see where this whole thing is going to go. But it takes us back again. There are two world views And they're totally opposite. When we begin with the biblical worldview, we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, there's God, the triune creator. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all involved in creation. And God is the one who has determined male and female. It's not better to be male, it's not better to be female, it's whatever you have. This is a good gift from God. And so in that context, that develops family, and family with church, and church with civil government. And God has revealed the right good laws and principles and authoritative roles that pertain to each of these units. Now what has happened is there's a worldview without the God of the Bible. The state or civil government has determined that truth is a social construct. You don't get it out of the Bible. We make it up. It may vary over time, but whatever a group of people determines is truth, that is right. And so, therefore, based upon that kind of truth, you're able to determine your identity. It's very interesting that the LGBTQ community doesn't like to say we were born that way. They say uh, that, that that used to be, they say, no, um, genetics may have a little part of it, but sexual preferences are what is important, and our sexual preferences may uh, vary over time. So let us just slide back and forth. One day I might want to be uh, part this, and the next day uh, part that. And uh, it denies the nuclear family Do not like... Uh, um, husband, wife, etc., and uh, society doesn't have these absolutes found in the scripture, etc. So here we are, returning back to the current political-cultural tension, and and even here in conservative Lafayette, Indiana, not only up in Canada, but bow the knee to our socially constructed truth because we have the power to punish you for your criminal conduct. We we can fine you, but we can put uh, penalties against you. It is a rebellion against the good creator. It's basically saying God is not our sovereign and intimate creator. He has no authority to tell us how to live regarding our sexual preferences and behavior. Each individual is completely autonomous and has the right to determine for oneself one's sexual identity practices and, pre- and preferences. Al Mohler and Erwin loser both wrote their book and said, we have lost the culture war. 85% of people here in the West now support LGBTQ the reason why they wrote those books is stand up within the church and don't endorse those kind of things in the church. the church needs to be the church. So when I when I talk about Imago Day that is really my emphasis this morning is that we in the church now mainline denominations that have gone liberal particularly, Presbyterian USA, United Methodist Church, I mean, they they love to have these speakers come in um, that uh, uh, address these issues, endorse them, um, but I consider those uh, apostate, and so the the true church uh, needs to stand firm. So I'm going to address three key issues grounded in Imago Dei, uh, complementarianism gro- grounded in the creation account, um, life in the womb at conception, and righteousness, not contemporary social justice. I just, um, those of you who come on Wednesday, you know we were, we were praying uh, for Dr. Ernie Godshall. I went to seminary uh, with him back in the late uh, 70s, and uh, uh, he's been a faithful pastor, uh, in uh, southern Indiana, and some of the leadership began to endorse Black Lives Matter, and he said, "No, you, you, of course Black Lives Matter. White lives matter, whatever the amount of melanin you have in your skin." But he said, "You need to read the organization. No, they were endorsing the organization. They would not him let him speak to the people." And he said, "Okay, then, then I'm done." So he left. He wasn't sure what he was going to do. And uh, about a hundred people left with him, asked him to start uh, new work. Just got, and we've been praying for him. Uh, he let me know, "Hey, now we got three elders, five deacons. The 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 work, the new work, is going uh, well." So so these are issues that impact even conservative churches. And then. I may not be able to cover everything, but I do want to get back to then to two God-honoring responses to unbiblical world views. Number one, believe and obey truth, glorify God, enjoy him forever, and then appropriate our unchanging resources. So if you'll flip back with me to Genesis 2 again quickly. This is, you know, this is good, probably good for me when uh, I have to humble myself and my wife has to put on my socks and shoes for me and tie my shoes. And I go, I better be very kind to my wife. So um, just flipping pages with my left hand is uh, a little challenging. Um, So complementarianism. What exactly is complementarianism? It's the opposite of egalitarianism. If you haven't heard the term, it actually uh, is not found in the Bible, but Trinity isn't found in the Bible either. It's a term coined back in the 70s and 80s when there was what I would call, uh, they would call themselves evangelical uh, feminists. Uh, complementarianism, notice it's spelled with a e, c o m p l e m e n. it's not an i, you're not saying nice things about people, um, and it means complete. In other words, male and female in marriage are designed by God to complete one another. They are equal in the sight of God, but There is a difference in role. To use another term, it's called functional subordination. Egalitarians would say, yes, we are equal in the sight of God, but if I can't do the same thing that a man can do, then we're not equal. Now, I would say that cuts cuts straight against the grain of Scripture. How many female priests were in the Old Testament? So what did, did God hate women? Was he being un, unjust? No. So just thinking through this whole thing, complementarianism means there is equality before God with role distinctions. Think about the significance of Adam's naming of the animals in there. And so God comes to him and it says it's the first not good in the Bible. It doesn't mean it's sin but there was no helper for Adam, so what did he do? As Waltke says, he didn't want to waste this great gift of woman upon Adam, he gave him a little object lesson. Mr. Giraffe, Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. Hippo, Mrs. Hippo, and all of a sudden he's getting the picture. Adam, hmm, what's wrong here? And then the book ends around there, there was nobody, not, not a helper. And a helper is not a derogatory term. Of the 19 occurrences of it in the Bible, most of those are actually used of God. He's the azer, the helper. And besides that, what was Eve going to be required to do? She had to help Adam be the co-regent over under God of having dominion over the earth. I would say that's probably pretty... Come on, Elbow, get back in there. There we go. Um, Over the whole earth. Then the naming of the animals, Hebrew, also uh, authority. He named woman. She's Isha, she's taken out of Ish, the applied theology. Leave, cleave, one flesh. So I submit to you, this is in the creation account. It is not foreign to it. And particularly showing that there are role distinctions, Adam's to be the head, he's to love his wife. When we come down to Ephesians, he's to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. When we come to the fall and what's happened, who does God come to first? comes to Adam. Um, Then there are key New Testament texts that spell this out, 1 Corinthians 11.3, theologically um, you have God the Father, and then you have you have Christ. Is Christ? Uh, he he's under God the Father in terms of the plan of redemption. Does that mean he's not equal to God? No, no he's he's fully equal to God. So you have man, woman, etc. In that First Corinthians eleven passage, First uh, Timothy two thirteen says the same thing. But particularly First Peter three. Live with your wives, katanosin, according to knowledge. And I take that the knowledge of the scriptures, giving honor to the weaker vessel, equal heirs of the grace of life. So there's, there's equality there, but God has designed that women are in generally a weaker vessel, and I take that weaker is, is physically. Uh, when Martina Navratilova came out, um, the, the ten- lesbian tennis star, and she did not like that transgendered men began to complete, compete as women, and she said, "Hey, this whole thing isn't right." And so she did some some studies, uh, pulled it in the DNA, all that type of thing, and uh, they threw her under the bus. The LGBT community, okay, you're 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 out now. Um, I looked it up th- this week. Um, Thomas, he now calls himself Leah Thomas, he was a swimmer on the University of Pennsylvania as a, competing as a male for three years. And then he took hormone suppression for a year. Now he's allowed to compete as a female. He's smashing records. And the people on, the gals on the swim team do not like it. He said, "Hey, he never asked us whether he wanted to join us." And so they're thinking of boycotting the final meet. If you look at rugby association, transgendered males that compete as females in rugby, they're damaging, hurting females. And so the National Rugby Association said, "We're not going to allow this anymore. This, this, this is wrong." And they did uh, some some studies. So. There is equality before God, but God has designed us differently as role distinctions. Men, you're 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 to take responsibility as the head in your home. Head there, kephalē means uh, you say the buck stops here. And wives, you're you're to be helpers to your husbands. You know how much help we need, and that is God's. Design. Now there's a popular, uh, so it's one man, one woman, united in marriage, and sex is a good gift from God. Now let me mention one popular attempt to try and deny the gift of biblical sexuality. There's an argument that Old Testament Mosaic legislation is no longer in effect, and the ban on same sex relations is not in agreement with the loving ethic of Jesus. You, if, if you look on social media, it's amazing how far that some will go to try and obviate the clear teaching of scripture. So it, it, the argument goes like this, This, what an Israel can eat, Israelite can eat and eat, cannot eat, what one can wear and cannot wear, um, Deuteronomy 22:11, you shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together, and then you have, if a man lies with a male, as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death, their blood shall be upon them. And they say, lump all that stuff together, put it under the old covenant, and therefore, since we do not practice where the garments, the food, the, the etc. Therefore, Leviticus 2013 is out the window. Now think about how you would answer that. Are what when did the Levitical stipulations for the nation of Israel begin? Mount what? Sinai. That's when the law was given. And when did it end? Mount Calvary. It goes down to the cross. Those are old covenant stipulations. Why were they given? To make the people miserable? No, they were given so the people would recognize in your the practice, everything that you do, you're, you're a distinct nation. You're a holy nation to God. You're separate. And this is supposed to reinforce that. But those stipulations are not grounded in creation. The ethic on Leviticus 20.13, that is grounded in creation. God's good plan is always sex is a good gift from God. It's in marriage. Here's the safeguards for it. So you just see over and over attempts to try and Uh, obviate the clear teaching of Scripture. Let me go from there because yesterday was uh, the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Uh, I'll just be real brief, turn to Psalm 139. I consider this text to just be so clear that the only thing you can do with it if you don't like it is throw it out the window when it comes to the uh, issue of life in the womb. David David is talking about uh, um, being in the womb and he starts out in verse 13For you, you that's very emphatic in Hebrew he's talking about God you form my inward parts you knit not some stuff together, me. A person together in my mother's womb. I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well." Now he's going to talk about the omniscience of God being in the womb, and he's going to uh, talk about using Hebrew poetry, the depths of the earth like the womb, in parallel. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This, th- this is crystal clear. That's life in the womb. It's a person at, at conception. And David's response is, Oh, how precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. Now, if you throw the Bible out the window and you throw God out the window, then you don't have this text. Let me give you one other example quickly from the New Testament, and that is the word brephos. In uh, Luke 1, uh, 41 and 42, uh, Mary and Elizabeth are together, and they are talking, and then it says, The baby leaped in the womb, the baby, brephos. Then you go to when Jesus was born in the manger. You know what it calls him? A brephos, a baby. In other words, what I'm saying to you is that it is the same word in the womb as the same word out the womb. The New Testament considers that to be a baby, a person. So... We'll see what happens. I, I watch uh, uh, the literature. Um, it probably is going to come to uh, the Supreme Court. Um, we have been praying that that would be overturned. We'll, we'll see. If it is overturned, I think uh, those who suspect that it's not going to end abortion here in the United States, it's just going to send it back to states' rights. But at least... It will put uh, some limitation. The Supreme Court has also upheld uh, the limitations here in Texas. So these are key issues. We ought to be concerned about them as believers because they all reflect imago Dei. I'm thankful for every pregnancy counseling center in America that saves life for true options here. in, uh, In Sherman, we support them and we also pray that uh, um, that not only physical life will be saved but uh, moms will come to an understanding of the gospel and find life in christ third issue about righteousness and not contemporary social justice this is true this is huge i can't tell you how huge this issue is, and it comes back to the issue of Imago Dei. In other words, I'm I'm watching and um, I I, I see uh, people tell me, George, don't you believe in social justice? I go, well, tell me what social justice is, and I'll tell you whether I believe in it or not. (laughs) In other words, the term has been hijacked. This is, a, this is a typical liberal way. If you go back and you look at the uh, arrival of neo-Orthodoxy theology, they would, they would tell the men that are graduating from seminary. Now, when you go out there and you get a conservative uh, uh, congregation, tell them you believe in salvation. But don't tell them what you mean by salvation. you got a whole different term underneath there. So if you ask what is salvation, Social justice. Um, Well, it's whatever you want to stick under the rubric. Ideological social justice today. Um, Any oppressed minority, LGBTQ, etc., right on down the line, all of this is social justice. How different is the Bible... It says the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteousness. Righteousness is a standard and justice that God has determined. It doesn't include all those things. And God wants righteousness and truth in the heart. Now, I'm glad I I had huge... some teaching on this, and I decided no. I'm just going to recommend two books to you. This probably is the best book on this whole issue. It's called "Fault Lines: The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicals' Looming Catastrophe." It's it's not a hard read, but if you have more interest, I would I would encourage you to read this book. If you if you don't know Vody Balcom, um, he is a black man. He did grow up in. Uh, was born in Los Angeles, and uh, he credits a single-parent home, and he credits his mother with having the greatest influence upon him. He said, "Um, I respected my mother. She said, no, you are going to be responsible, and I'm going to hold you accountable. He said, the second thing that I was afraid of was that she'd kill me if I didn't listen to her. So... Um, They eventually moved from uh, Los Angeles with all the drug problems and everything. She said, he needs some more influence in his life. So uh, she took him to her uncle out in South Carolina, who happened to be a Marine Corps drill instructor. And uh, he says, I am so thankful for his influence uh, on my life. He had done two tours in Vietnam. And uh, when 911 happened, he was 50 years old. He went down and he tried to re-enlist, but he says the influence. And then they moved back uh, to Texas. Just the biographical information here in the front is important. Now why, why this has happened helpful is this. If I say the things in there, many are going to discount it. Why? Because I'm not black, I'm not poor. And I'm not oppressed. So the more clicks that you can have in that category, supposedly, the better you you can speak. He goes, well, that's nonsense, but I'm going to speak to it um, anyway. And then uh, he'll go through all the scenarios with Colin Kaepernick, George Floyd, all those types of things, and say um, body cam footage. What really happened here? And he'll set the record straight in here. It's well worth your reading because the scenarios that are still presented do not match what actually happened. And then he will come down to the last one, which is probably most helpful, and he calls it ethnic Gnosticism. Now if you know what Gnosticism is in the second century, it's a secret kind of knowledge. So he says ethnic Gnosticism is this. Um, if, you're, if you're oppressed and a minority, and the more ticks you can get in that category, then you have knowledge that no one else has to be able to address the situation. Um, we we, we listened to uh, a white gal. Who is a leader in this? And she says, "Let me let me tell you what happened for me." She said, "Yes, I I didn't know." And so what's happened was I was able to strip away and get down to my inner self somehow, and I obtained this understanding. And this is the understanding that you need. That's why he calls it Gnosticism. And so if you would if you would follow this, and by the way, she'll charge you twenty thousand dollars an hour to come in and talk to your church about this issue. Anyway, the the whole issue here is how do we evaluate? How do we evaluate things? Everybody should be able to get uh, voice what what you think, um, but we evaluate it by Scripture, not because someone has a particular viewpoint and you are either Uh, a a minority or a majority, whatever, we evaluate it by Scripture, and that's Votie's Votie's point. So if you have have interest in these subjects, I would highly recommend you to read this book. It's readable. He's not a Johnny-come-lately-to-the-scene. He's been writing about these issues for about 20 years. Um, The other book that I have found helpful is Scott David Allen, why social justice is not biblical justice. And he'll just work through the Scriptures, what is justice in the Bible, what is righteousness, what's being taught today, and show that the two of those uh, do not uh, jive. So let's go to two God-honoring responses to unbiblical worldviews. The first one is individual. I still look at the stats and the greatest lack among professing believers, what do you think it is? They don't read the book. They don't read the, don't read the Bible. This, this is God's truth. You need to read your Bible. I can't tell you how much to read every day. But you need to get something systematic. If you need an accountability partner to hold you accountable, come to us as one one of elders, and and we'll set up a program for you to read your Bible regularly. This is God's word; you need it. The young the young men have started a uh, group. Join join that group. Um, so it starts within the heart. Deuteronomy 6, Matthew 22, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do you love God with your heart? Well, it starts with thinking correctly about him. And you can't think correctly about God if you don't know God in his word. You have to know the scriptures. But we're not here about intellectual prowess. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do you know, do you know how many things pride may drive you to do. Pride's a great motivator. Proverbs 6 says it's an abomination before God. He he gives grace to the humble, so I should be doing it from a standpoint of humility to glorify and honor God. Proverbs 4.23, what's the most important thing you should guard? Above all else, guard your heart. Why? Everything, it's the wellspring of life. Everything comes out of your heart. Psalm 119, 9 through 11, your word I have treasured, I have stored up in my heart, verse after verse, verse after verse, verse after verse. So when sin comes knocking and all these tendencies blow and winds, you go, no, that's not right. That's not what the Bible has to say. Um, I'm going to honor God. And then in the home, think of the importance of the home. This is highly attacked today. Um, Genesis 18, God says to uh, Abram, I'm not going to hide from Abraham what what I'm going to do. You know why? He's supposed to command his children to know righteousness and to do it. Now, just because you command your children, they have their own responsibility to respond and accept the truth. We see it in Deuteronomy 6. Teach them. Hold it in your heart and teach them. How often you are supposed to teach them? When you lie down, when you sit up, when you, when you rise. You know, and, and I'm thankful that um, my one son and daughter-in-law had twins. You go, you are? I realized how hectic life can be in the home with little kids. I forget that. It, it's been a long time. Uh, since and, and we would go in, and, and we'll have them over, and whew, um, I'm glad. To, I don't have the energy to do all that any, anymore. So we ought to pray for our parents with small children. We ought to support them. We ought to get good tools in their hands. And if you have not had book 1, 2, and 3 on those catechisms, see me. I'll have copies for you if you're not doing anything in the home. Psalm 78, the same thing. We're not going to hide it from the next generation. We're going to tell the next generation. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, it starts. And then we go from individually to the home. Then we go to the church. What is the church supposed to be? 1 Timothy 3.15. 3.15. 3.15. It is the pillar and support of the truth. Then in the world, what are we supposed to do in the world? We hold out the gospel. We hold out the gospel. Someone says, no, you can't do that. What do we keep on doing? We hold out the gospel. And then finally, appropriate our unchanging resources, that a God and the word of his grace, the throne of grace, the weapons of our warfare, believers of the household of faith, power of the gospel for salvation. I want to end by going to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 through 16 are the upper room discourse. Um, Jesus has turned his attention away from just proclaiming truth uh, to people in general, the Pharisees, Sadducees. Now he's preparing his own disciples for his departure. So chapters 13 through 16 are exactly about that. And then chapter 17 He is going to pray for his disciples, and all of this is on the eve when he's going to be betrayed and then the crucifixion. But watch right before the washing of the feet how this starts. John 13, now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew, you can take that participle as causal because Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, because he loved his own who were in the world. And here's the phrase I want to emphasize he loved them, ace telos. This is probably double entendre here. It, it means he loved them, yes, to the uh, temporal sense but it's also in an intensive sense. He loved his own intensively as nobody else. (laughs) And what are his disciples going to do? They're going to abandon him. Peter's going to deny him. He already knows that that one of them is, is not clean. God loves you more than I could ever love you. God loves me more than I could ever love Him. His love is perfect. It is infinite. It does not vary. And His, now He manifests His love differently. If I sin, He will discipline me because He's the perfect heavenly Father. That's an example of His love. So when we come down to God and and the word of His grace and all these things, I remind myself God is on our side, he is not against us. And what he wants us to do is to believe him, obey him, and honor him, and he will manifest himself to us relationally. That's the church. We ought to be caring for one another, we ought to be loving one another, loving our God, and holding out the gospel. When we lose that, and we got Ichabod across the door. May God help us. I, I don't like being called names. I, I don't like uh, controversy per se, but someone has to stand in the midst of controversy and speak the truth. And so, Lord, help us, help us to do it in a godly way. Help us to call sinners to repentance. Help us to continue on with the truth. Help us to be a people who love our God and who love one another and hold out the gospel."